0: Welcome everyone to this special episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. Today, we have a special guest and a special topic to update uh, all of our listeners on some new developments in the area of engineered composite pipe repair. And my guest today is my very own second in command, our, uh, the general manager and the integrator and the technical uh, leader at Innovator Industrial, Chris Coombs. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Don, how are you? I can't be happier, my friend. So, Chris, way back in 2009, when, when I actually started Innovator, I had written down a goal that one day we were going to figure out and get regulators to approve engineered composite pipe repair, and my concept at the time was like a CRN, the same way you would get a a registration number on a leak repair enclosure or a hot tap fitting. Now many many years have passed, and uh, and we've we've had some significant, um, some, some significant significant advances in this approach, but it. it it took a different path than we thought. What has happened? Yeah. I, I, you know,
1: it took a different path for sure, but I think when, you know, looking back, I think it took the only path it could have, um, thinking about the difference between, you know, when we design an enclosure, we're, we're actually following a process for designing a category H fitting. And there's rules and regulations in place about designing that fitting. And then when we get the CRN, that's what we're actually getting. We're getting a registration of a design of a physical component, thinking about composite engineering, composite systems. It's not so much designing a physical component as it is restoring the integrity to an existing asset. And for that, you know, it's more about registering the application of the repair or more accurately, the alteration than it is about registering a design. And that's why we've taken, or the industry and ABSA has taken the approach as classifying this as an alteration and looking case by case versus registering specific designs for repair.
0: And so instead of registering designs for individual companies, the industry came together with ABSA, leading it and created sort of a working group to come up with an agreeable process, a strategy for how the industry could uh, take advantage of the the capabilities of engineered composite systems.
1: They did. So it's been about a year since the um, since engineered composite systems and ECS is the term. And, and, you know, before I go any further, we, um, you know, we always talked about Leak repair enclosures. And there were 10 different names for leak repair enclosures. I think we maybe even listed them on this podcast one time, um, a different episode. And with APS's involvement, that transformed into an engineered pressure enclosure. So the new acronym was EPE for leak repair enclosures. So today, the new, acro- the new acronym for composite repair is ECS, which is an engineered composite system. So about a year ago, um, ABSA introduced AB 539, which is the engineer composite systems for pressure equipment alterations. That means that this activity has been adopted by legislation in Alberta and also adopted by legislation in Saskatchewan. Um, Two provinces that were part of the industry group and part of the process for determining what needed to happen and how to deliver it. So that's where we are today. We now have a document AB 539 that not only lists out what you need to do to register both your procedure and your application, it also instructs you um, how to design and how to produce and manufacture the materials required to meet AB 539 for engineered composite systems.
0: So this new regulation helps facility owners and all of their integrity teams and all their maintenance teams understand their responsibilities? It, it does, it's actually, it's very well written. And I, I think, you know,
1: having the input from the industry, which APS is, is always very good at, is, is reaching out, forming these groups. Um, and the way this document, I, I think just over time, like APS is also getting better at writing these documents. And it's very clear on how it identifies, if you're an owner user, if you're a manufacturer, a designer, an installer, a supplier, and it breaks down everyone's accountability, everyone's responsibility inside of this process to not just what you're responsible for, but also the actions that you would take. So it's written very well.
0: So if you're an owner, I mean, you know, there, you mentioned installers, designers, manufacturers, suppliers I mean, you actually fill a bunch of those roles in one way or another, don't you?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's basically three parties involved when I think about it. There, there's an owner user who at the end of the day, like they have ultimate care of the pressure equipment at their facility. So, you know, you're going you're gonna to hire an approved contractor. You're going to ensure that they have competent people to do the work. And this is any project, any repair, you know, not just composite. And you're going to do your due diligence in accordance with your process. But at the end of the day, you have the ultimate care and responsibility of that equipment. And and that's no different in engineering composites. So ABSA is very, um, very intent on the owners accepting responsibility and performing the actions that reflect that. And maybe we'll go into them a little later, but just quickly, like the owner is responsible for a risk assessment. The owner is responsible for an integrity assessment where they identify the root cause of the failure. A lot of the the work before the ECS is designed is responsibility of the owner. Then we'll shift to, you know, we call it the designer, the manufacturer, or the supplier. It's typically one company, and, and these companies manufacture the products, design the ECS, and supply it. So that's, you know, that could be any number of vendors um, throughout North America, throughout Europe. And then it's where we come in, which is the installer. So we develop procedures for the installation of the composite, and we execute it and ensure that all the training, the competency for the crew is where it needs
0: to be. So the installers need to focus on their installation procedures, their training and competency and registering their procedures with, with ABSA, with TSAS, with, and, you know, hopefully and eventually with all of the other regulatory uh, organizations across Canada. Um, What does the owner need to focus on?
1: Yeah. So, you know, The very first thing they would do, and I mean, this is, it's just pretty basic. We'll get into the important stuff, but you know, it's, it's grabbing this AB 539 and just familiarizing yourself with it. Because like I said, it does lay everything out. The most important thing from an owner's perspective is that they include this type of alteration. So the ECS, the engineering composite system, they include it into their quality management system as a type of alteration i keep wanting to say repair because we are repairing damaged piping and we're restoring structural integrity so you might hear me say repair a few times but the technical or the definition of what we're doing from a legislation standpoint is an alteration right. so any any owner user has a, an aqp with apps and we refer to this as um, an 8,000 level aqp so inside of that quality management system, they're gonna they're gonna explain to ABSA how they intend on repairing their piping, how they intend on altering their piping or any pressure equipment, and that's really that's all ABSA needs. They just want to be able to they they don't want to tell anybody what to do. Um, they want to enforce the legislation, and they want owners to to say, hey, this is what I intend to do. This is how I intend to repair my equipment to alter my equipment. That was a big, actually, a big delay, I think, on getting composites approved in the first place, was everyone was waiting for somebody else to act. It's kind of like an, an absence stance is hey, like, I don't tell you how to repair your equipment. You tell me how you repair it, and I'll see if it's in line with legislation or not. So, kind of going back to it, the first thing that an owner would have to do is decide that an ECS alteration is a method that they want to use to repair their piping and write that process into their quality management system. The really great thing about it, it's it's very similar and and so many points cross over with the engineering pressure enclosure. So AB 521 would be a familiar document for anyone involved in in, uh, the maintenance of, of the pressure equipment from a leaking standpoint. And you can leverage so much of what you wrote inside of that aspect. To transfer over into composites. Very similar.
0: Right. And so, you know, if you're already doing uh, and leveraging uh, enclosure leak repair methods, you know, engineered pressure enclosures, and you're familiar with uh, AB 521, then that can be your roadmap to, to add this part to your manual to cover AB 539.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the biggest hurdle that an owner might face, and I I haven't been on that side, so this is really only my perspective. And I know when it comes to even the statement I made earlier about ultimate care and responsibility of the pressure equipment, like nobody's going to take that lightly. However, when, when writing this section into their manual, it's focusing on the aspects that they control and then allowing the designer to do their part and allowing the installer to do their part. So what I mean by that is in conversations with some owners in the beginning, struggling trying to write their program to be prescribing how to design a composite instead of writing procedures on how you will review design or how you will select the designer. Two completely different things. And I can't imagine somebody who is not actually a designer of composites writing a document on how to design composites. And and that's a big shift that I think owners can gotcha. really take advantage of. Focus I on what they're good some
0: at. Those, I remember some of those owners that were talking with us a few years ago, and they wanted catalogs of all of our, uh, our engineer composite system designs for every kind of example. And we're like, like why do you need this? Because they were they were thinking uh, or trying to build their program around controlling the designer and controlling the installer, Uh, maybe even not, not sort of, not controlling, but telling them how to do their part of expertise. When what they really needed to focus on is how are they going to evaluate the designer? How are they going to evaluate uh, and make sure that the uh, designer and the installer and the supplier were compliant with regulation?
1: Exactly. And, and, You know, I think when you carve out that, then the hurdle or what maybe seems like I'll never have time to write this section, you can strip it down and just really focus on what you are going to do in line with your responsibilities. And then how are you going to hold the other parties to their responsibilities? And how far- And And
0: it becomes more about evaluation and quality assurance as opposed to directing the work.
1: Exactly. And how 539 is written, it the language lends really good to transferring that language right into your manual. Um, it, 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 as long as you're not trying to redesign or rewrite the document, then you have a very good template to start.
0: Okay. And so the the owner's responsibility is to add this, to their quality manual, and to make sure that they understand their part in risk assessment and root cause, um, uh, and and then you know a a much simpler approach to quality assurance for the other parties.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, the um, the things that and and what they write in their manual, and then you know how to implement that you know, focusing on, like I mentioned before, focusing on the integrity assessment, focusing on maintenance and monitoring, focusing on risk assessment, and focusing on removal. Like those aspects are things that the owner is going to follow inside of their own management of change procedure. And they're going to write, they're going to change that language to reflect what they do internally. They're not going to change their risk assessment process to something that's different from what they do for any type of defect or for any type of repair. They're going to leverage that, what they do in control, and then lean on the other parties and how the document's written to enforce their side is um, really the approach to to getting this moving.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned that uh, AB 539 covers installers and designers and us, you know, and, and, you know, what we do and what, uh, and what you know, other parties, you know, will likely do or try to do. But not everyone can just jump in and start, you know, you can't do a two day course and decide you're going to be a composite systems installer designer, can you?
1: No, a- absolutely not. Um, you know, I, I guess there's a couple of ways to, to kind of address this topic, but, you know, ultimately, this is not something that you just decide one day. Um, that I'm going to go, you know, repair some pressure equipment. No, no different than if um, you know. I would just say, like, if if a, an owner hires a contractor to, to come out and and repair, you know, to repair a section of piping using traditional welding means. So they're going to weld a sleeve, something like that. And the response to the contractor, the response from the contractor is okay, sure. Um, I've actually never done that before, but why don't I'll develop the procedure and then we'll test it and I'll come out and I'll do the repair for you. I mean, that's, that's just not going to happen, right? That the owner is going to say, well, like from a competency standpoint, you know, difference between training and competency is obviously it's not there. So from an ECS standpoint, I think from an owner's perspective, aligning yourself with the contractor that actually, you know, lives and breathes composite on a daily basis, like this is part of what they do, it's incorporated into their, into their daily activities, that's where you're really going to get the benefit because this contractor now is going to have already registered procedures that you can take advantage of. They're going to have, the training is going to be complete, but they're going to have the competency and the experience to back it up. And that's really where the benefit is going to come in and why you can't just pick it up one day and, um, and install it. To that, to that point, one of the biggest concerns from ABSA in the beginning was how the installer, the quality of the installation affects the effectiveness of the repair. And they had trouble quantifying that. They had trouble writing that into their documents. I can't write the skill of the, it depends on the skill of the installer. So we put a lot of checks and balances in place for how to determine competency. But at the end of the day, um, the ability of the installer does greatly impact the success of this type of repair.
0: Yeah, I mean, you touched on something there that I am passionate about. And I see this as a problem in, you know, as we've ad- in our industry, as we've added more and more regulations and more and more controls, everyone is seeking a certification. And, you know, tradespeople call, oh, I got a ticket. Well, having a training session in any sort of specialized service is it doesn't give you any license to do anything other than to be a helper to someone who is competent. Um, and competency in any service and engineered composite systems is a critical one is key because there are so many applications, there are different types of materials, surface preparation, different wrapping methods. And it takes years to develop the competencies within competency equals many different procedures, proven that you can do it on your own over time before you are let to do it on your own as 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 the competent lead technician. And I'll just speak for myself I've been involved in composites, uh, composite systems for 18 years. And I have gone through training and certification with every single major supplier of composite repair in the world. Every one of them. And I think I've, you know, somewhere in a filing cabinet, I've got five different certificates and I am not competent to wrap my water line in my bathroom with composite. I know the theory. And if I brushed up on the procedures, I would re familiarize myself, but I would never be competent to go out and perform this work for a client. I, I did the training to understand the differences in the product and in the differences in the solutions. I never did the training with the intent that I was going to be the lead competent technician to do that work. So my reasons for doing the training were different. But the point here is that the training course does not give any capability to go perform the work under this regulation. It's just not enough
1: no no definitely not um competency is it was a big topic in the group and something i spent a lot of time with so we all actually had to you know there was i don't know maybe there was 20 25 people in the group together and some of those people were designers some of them were engineers some of them were material specialists and then we had some execution people some quality control people so so a broad group um, and the document, you know, if you look through the document, you'll see it has all those aspects. It has design, it has QA, it has inspection. Um, so we, we broke it up into different aspects based on skill set and based on, you know, what we were all kind of passionate about. And the company set, competency section was one that I would not let go of. Um, and I felt so strongly about it. The um, There's a number of, you know, in order to start, so we talk about starting. So sure, there's there's an initial training event to get you started and to get you familiarized with that material. What's happening now is we take that one step further. So if you picture, you think about the engineer, the engineering composite procedure similar to a welding procedure. This is how I am going to wrap your plate. This is how I'm going to weld these two pieces of metal together. That's what the procedure tells you. But what people want to see is Well, can you do that and can you do it over and over? Can you repeat it? And that's where the qualification comes in. So something that we've added to composite is the PQR, performance qualification record. So now not only do we write the procedure, we have to demonstrate that the people that are doing the installation can repeat that same type of installation um, in other circumstances. So with every procedure, we have to provide a qualification report. And that just then further cements that this is the, not only is this the procedure designed for your application, but it's been tested and it's proven effective. So that, again, now we're still just getting started. Then we have um, similar, again, similar to other parts of industry, like taking on things like an engineering logbook, where we document all the repairs for an installer, whether they were successful or not, the pressure, the temperature, was there through holes, did they have to use a stopgap? All these things go into determining someone's competency and just building them up throughout the levels for, for composite repair.
0: So similar, you know, using something that a lot of listeners would be familiar with. Someone can go to trade school to go to Nate or wherever, and they can learn welding and they might even eventually become a journeyman welder, but then company X hires them and company X has five welding procedures in order for that person to be authorized to work to those procedures, they've got to they've got to have a track record. They've got to they've got to weld coupons. Those coupons got to be tested, and they've also you know you know then they're also tracking effectively success and repair rates over time to to build that person's competency up so that when a, when a client says, hey, I want someone to weld Inconel, you know that the the contractor can say, here's my procedure, it's registered, here are my qualified welders and here is their performance track record to prove their competency.
1: That's what you need. Um, That is exactly what you need to be effective, but also be compliant with the new regulation to install ECS. And like I mentioned before, if that is not a main focus of the installer, then you're just going to get somebody who's doing it in the moment for the activity versus maintaining it on a regular basis.
0: And I, and I think that there's an interesting pivot point there, you know, because you, you and I have been involved in composite systems for a long time and we've seen a lot of contractors and owners and other organizations doing this with uh, what I would call at best a training event. Um, and, and because it was never regulated, uh, it has a reputation of being a band-aid and not being a engineered system for restoring the integrity of a piping system. Because people have used it as, uh, like plumber's tape, mm-hmm. to, to patch up something. This yeah. is something. This process is something very different than I've got a pinhole leak. Wrap some. Fiberglass around it.
1: Uh, absolutely. The, um, you know, and, and kind of even thinking about that. So there's, I said in the beginning, there's a lot of similarities between the AB521 and the AB539. So one for engineer pressure enclosures and the other for engineer composite systems. There's also a lot of similarities in how they can be used, not just in the legislation in how they can be used. So you can use an ECS to repair a pinhole leak. You can use an ECS because you have a thinning section that's holed through um, and repair that. But that's not the, the main advantage of a system like this. So, you know, there's leak repair. In my mind, there's leak repair. And then there's asset longevity. And it's about, you know, or leak repair versus leak prevention and that's where i really think the ecs stands alone as opposed to eps there's a place where you can use them interchangeably and maybe your decision to use them is based on cost a great decision to use an ep sorry an ecs over an enclosure so composite over enclosure would be the weight you know if you get into a large diameter piping and you've just got a pinhole leak so now we're talking leak repair and, you know, I still think the preferred method of leak repair is an enclosure, but if you got to put a thousand pounds of steel on your pipe to repair that pinhole leak, you know, maybe there's a better option, which is where composite comes in. So you can, you can evaluate the two, but if you truly want to take advantage of what ECS has to offer, you're thinking about asset life. You're thinking about extending the life of your asset Um, wrapping it before it experiences the pinhole and then using that information to, you know, to identify other assets, other pipe, other pipelines within your facility that can be wrapped and really take your maintenance program from doing repairs to just, you know, permanently repairing sections of piping when it suits you versus,
0: you know, Fixing a leak when, as it comes up. When you're, also. you know, yeah, when you get a leak, you're forced to deal with it, and and you're always in react mode. But leveraging this new capability, you can be much more proactive to do a lot of things, right? You can prevent leaks. One, you can make decisions around uh, which piping systems need to be replaced on a project or on a turnaround. Which ones you can extend the life of for uh, some defined life, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I was, again, maybe some of our owner, and actually I'd love to hear from, them, you know what I mean? Like it almost be like you say something incorrect just so an owner could, if there was an owner listening or somebody involved in the inspections in, in one of those facilities could correct me on it because I think that would be amazing. But if you think about having an inspection, you have a monitoring plan and throughout that monitoring plan, Um, you identify a section of piping that is starting to lose integrity. It's not near leaking yet. It's not even below T-min. You know, it's nothing like that. But you you notice something that is starting to degrade. So because it, you know, I feel like then that asset is going to be elevated to another level of inspection. So maybe the frequency picks up right? So now the frequency's picked up, the amount of man hours going into inspecting that asset has picked up. All of these things have a cost to eventually, at some point, either you're going to make it to a turnaround, or that line is going to leak. you know, the way I see it. So instead of continuing to escalate the inspection activities, you could just wrap that asset, remove it out of your inspection loop, and then focus your inspection activities somewhere else to identify another asset and then continue to do the same. So not only are you putting the integrity back in, you're preventing a leak, but you also now can just kind of breathe easy and remove that asset from the inspection protocol altogether.
0: Yeah, well, it allows you to be much more proactive and redeploy all your monitoring and inspection focus elsewhere. Once you decide I'm gonna use my inspection resources and my repair resources to just make this a non-issue. Uh, you know, we, we both have friends who are involved in NDE at our client facilities. Uh, one friend of mine, in particular, he was responsible for something like 185,000 UT measurements per year, looking for and monitoring, and you know, so that the, the, that the facility could predict. And trend failures, and this is exactly what we're talking about. They had an army of people who were doing inspection on a regular basis, just looking for wall loss.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: On an, you know, and I, I, I would imagine, and I, 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 don't, I don't even need to imagine. I know every major client has that sort of a program in place, and so this is no longer a maintenance, just a maintenance uh, tool. It becomes a new strategy within your asset reliability program.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, those conversations, I think are still very new. So I don't, I don't believe those conversations are happening yet today, right? Like this is now in legislation, you know, it's, it's started, some owners are starting to get comfortable. We've registered three, uh, we've registered our, we've registered one procedure, two pending with three specific applications. So it's kind of where we're sitting today. And Owner users are starting to get very comfortable with the process and 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 leveraging the material. But I don't think the conversations are happening at that asset integrity level. It's still happening at a maintenance level. And that's where right. I really think this could um, really benefit uh, benefit our, our clients.
0: I think that's where it can transform their business in the way that they do a lot of things. Because traditionally, we've always engaged with clients when they've already... They're at the point of no return. They've got to fix the piping. Sometimes they've already got leaks or they know that they're only going to get two or three more months. And that's the point where they are talking to us. But instead of being at 80% wall loss with a failure predicted within 30 or 60 days, through their monitoring program, they could trend, hey, we're at 50%, we've got a year we could take this out of the turnaround scope and extend, deal with the loss of integrity and extend the life of this asset for a defined life. You know, a lot of people ask, well, how long can it last? So can you touch on what defined life means and what clients can do with this system
1: though? I can. Um, And if, you know, thinking about, so before I jump in, I feel like ABSA and I said in the beginning did an amazing job with how this document was written and how composite was entered into legislation. They were um, very open to, you know, listening to the parameters in terms of pressure and temperature. And I think they, you know, what they adopted, I think fits really well in the industry. There was also areas where they were very conservative. So they were conservative inside of scope. Um, applicability, so where you can use it in terms of um, when it's classified as normal fluid service and category D and different things like that. They were also very conservative on the removal date. And in this case, they stuck with what they knew, which was a one to two year removal of an EPE. So while I go into to talk about design life, I wanted to highlight that in, within legislation, there is a one to two year commitment to remove the composite. That doesn't mean that it can't get extended. So then we'll we'll move into defined life. The defined life means that a composite repair can be designed to last however long you want it to last. So we can design a repair around a two year lifespan. We can design a repair around a five year lifespan. Repairs can be designed for permanent. Um, To design a repair for a permanent repair, that that sounded that sounded off to design an ECS for a permanent repair it requires a 50 plus year lifespan and all that is capable within an ECS and it's all about understanding what the requirements of the the unit are you know what the the asset life is you know how how long would an owner want to get out of that asset how long do they need to get out of it and when you know when is it a Available for them to repair. So that's really what a design life means. It's instead of how long can it last, it's selecting a date in the future and then designing the repair to meet that date.
0: So the, the, the capability of the materials and the design of that individual repair with a variety of different materials can meet the needs of the client based on what they say, hey, I want to get, I need to get five years out of this because. And then we could design it that way. Now you said that within the regulation, it has this two-year uh, registration, and you also mentioned the possibility or the uh, process for extension. Can you touch on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. The um, you know inside of the registration. So we talked a little bit about some of the be- things in the beginning, like an integrity assessment, which would be a root cause analysis. Then you do a risk assessment, and a risk assessment as you know a lot about you know what happens in the unit if something like this fails what are the what are the risks to personnel what are the risks to the environment um and also what are the risks to the personnel during the installation as well you know making sure everything can be done safely one of the um and i want to come back to this a little later when we talk about um, the the conservative nature of the document and how that maybe can hold people back. Well, let's get back to that. So try to stay on, to stay on point here. I'll bring you so, back to that in a minute. Bring me back to that, chat. So inside of the risk assessment, you know, so you identify that like in this next two years, here are the risks of failure. Um, and that gets accepted as part of the registration. But along with that, there's a maintenance and monitoring plan. So what that means is I'm going to perform a visual assessment of this repair at X frequency, and absent doesn't dictate what um, the frequency must be. That all fits into the risk assessment. So if um, you, if a client accepts the risk of doing a, a visual inspection, and maybe something that we refer to as a tap test. So a tap test is is actually you know tapping the repair um, at various places to to feel for different types of failures, like disbonding failures, to feel for soft spots and different things in the wrap, to indicate that there's been a leak or, or something. So there's different types of inspection that you can do through maintenance and monitoring, even up to like performing an x-ray. So if, if the timing is right and, and maybe that unit was down, um, but not scheduled for a repair, then you could perform an x-ray on the composite. You could get a really good look at the defect underneath. and. Um, you could determine that the defect has grown either still within the parameters of the design or is expected to grow outside the parameters of the design. With all that in place, if you then redo your risk assessment and you either increase or keep your maintenance and monitoring plan the same, you could apply for an extension and easily get another two years. And you could continue that process until you can't until you can no longer demonstrate an equivalent level of safety within the repair.
0: Okay. So the, the, the essence is, is much like the rest of their monitoring and risk assessment of all of their assets. If they have a plan in place, then there is the possibility that if we if someone designed that for a 10-year repair and they registered it, and had a risk mitigation process in place for two years, then the possibility and the systems are in place there to extend that registration in increments that make sense throughout the risk assessment process.
1: Absolutely. I'm kinda, I was thinking and I wanna get, uh, if we have any ABSA listeners, You know, this is not meant to get anyone in trouble. Um, and I'll lead in here, I'll lead into the next point I think a little bit here, but first, ABSA doesn't want you to ask, they don't want to say, hey, can I put this on for 10 years? I believe what they want to see is I intend to put this on for 10 years and here's how I intend to make it safe. It's a completely different conversation. But if you ask, hey, can I do this? They're going to say no. Um, and and we experience that. I think everyone experiences that in our level of business, the difference between asking and the difference between, you know, stating your intention to do something. We're always going with that is, One of the hurdles I think to people adopting composites is the conservative nature of the scope of where you can install it. For instance, if you have a through hole defect, legislation, the AB 539 will only allow you to install that on category D systems, which is essentially water. What I really admire ABSA for in this case is that they really lean into the intent versus the black and white of the language so case in point we registered just last month a through hole defect on hydrocarbons because we were very clearly able to show an equivalent level of safety and no other you know means was effective as an ECS to repair it so because we met the basic intent of you know what abs is looking for they reviewed on a case-by-case basis and they accepted that as an acceptable procedure. And I think if you just look at the black and white of the document, you could be missing many opportunities to leverage composites, but if you really focus on the intent and you say, this is what I wanna do, I accept the responsibility, here are the risks, then ABSA is always going to review and listen to that application.
0: And that, that level of capability to go through that process, to show the rigor for focus on safety and, and designing the whole thing, you can't, you know, and owners can't get that from someone who is just assigned to go install the composite. What do you think owners should do in terms of the way that they are aligning themselves with, you know, in the... In the document, it talks about installers and designers and the owner. Um, what's a great strategy for an owner to make sure that all of those things are aligned for consistent performance so they can get those kinds of results?
1: Um, I, 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 the first thing that came to my head, it was kind of funny. It was kind of thinking like the, the easy button in, in a sense, but you know, it's about picking somebody that makes that section of the document easier on you, right? If, if you have to really work with your contractor to understand how they prove competency, if you have to really work with them to help them develop their procedures, then you're, you know, I think you'd be doing yourself a disservice where I, there's contractors out there, just like, like, like Innovator, where that's been such a focus for us for the last 10 years that we have this, you know, this type of documentation readily available. It's already written into our quality management system. It was written into our quality management system before um, Composites was adopted in legislation in preparation for this. So just making sure that you select somebody who I guess is at the forefront versus just always reacting to what the changes are in the industry.
0: Yeah, this is this kind of work. This is, and you know, it's an engineered composite system. It's not a task. No, all Right. this is not this is not. Hey, I've got, you know, and, and I and I and all, all respect to all the general contractors out there. But this is not deciding. Here's one of 10 people who can install some valves for me. I think this is a, you know, it's new. But and there's a there's a level of competency required. But from a easy to do for owners, they got to they've got to align themselves with an installer design team who just knows how to do this better than they could ever ever know. And that way, they've just got to focus on you know quality assurance and risk assessment and you know monitoring their assets. Do what they do best.
1: Absolutely, yeah, um, I I couldn't agree with that more, and. It should be easy. It should be easy for the installer to produce the level of ITP that's acceptable by APSA. It should be easy for the installer to produce the proof of competency that's acceptable by APSA. It should be easy to register these applications. Um, and if it doesn't feel easy, then you know that may be a, a sign that you might, you know, need to, to look for, for that easy button.
0: Let's, you know, lead into the registration process, because this is not just the owner.
1: No, it isn't. Um, there's, there's really two parts to it. And we, I think we touched on it, but it's great to just get it, get it specifically. There, it's a two-part registration process. There is what we refer to as the ECSPS, the Engineered Composite System Procedure Specification. So think of that like your welding procedure and PQR combo. That has to get registered in advance. So we, we pick a material um, in terms of a composite material. You look at a range of applications. So, I, you know, off the top of my head, you got, you know, half inch diameter piping all the way up to 36 inch or 48 inch diameter piping. The, the great thing about composites is that it doesn't matter what the diameter is. And and it also doesn't really matter too much on what the pressure is. However, the um, the legislation has has placed a 500 psi limit on, on what's approved. So that kind of helps us narrow in on the procedures of, of where you can of where you can um, build how you can build it. But the first thing an installer would do, and this has to be kind of on their own, like this doesn't need to be client owner user prompted. They register those procedures and you register enough procedures to kind of cover a gambit of what you may face in the field. That's step one. Step two is then is, is simply about the application. And the easiest way to say it is, I think I've already mentioned it, is we've got an application that we want to repair and we're gonna show you that we can do it with composite with an equivalent level of safety as a traditional means. And then inside of that, there's all the steps that need to happen, which was the, essentially the RRIMR process that everyone was familiar with that got added to leak repair enclosures is what we're following for composites.
0: And that involves both the owner and the installer, uh, go, you know, participating together to register that alteration and the design and, and, and that whole process, right?
1: It, it, it does, yeah. Uh, you know, I I think I mentioned it starts with an integrity assessment. So, why is your pipe leaking, or why is it failing? Like, do you know what the root cause is? And because if you don't, then how do you know this repair will actually make any difference, right? So that's where it starts. Then it moves into a, um, it moves into the uh, the risk assessment, like I mentioned before, maintenance and monitoring, and the reproval, re- and the removal date. One of the, um, something new that got added that many owners are not maybe not used to is that there's the the UDS. So UDS is the user design specification. Like we commonly refer to this as a data sheet. So we go out and we collect the data sheet. All the parameters that are required to design a composite system. In this case, the owner must stamp the, the UDS. So that's a new requirement above anything that we we're used to in, in EPEs where they need to actually stamp the input parameters to confirm that they're correct so that the designer can then go ahead and, and follow the process to design the system.
0: I like that process to be quite honest because you know whether it's um, whether it's a, a EPE or a hot tap sometimes it can be a challenge to get the right information from the owner because they're getting it from three or four different people trying to find materials and thicknesses and corrosion allowances. And, 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 and then in, in sometimes and sometimes if the right conversations are not happening, they're giving you an opinion versus versus mm-hmm. actually going and getting the right information. So I, I actually think that that's a really good step in making sure that everyone understands the critical importance of collecting the right data. Yeah, for sure. Yep. This isn't new technology.
1: No, no, it isn't. Um, And I'm not not even going to pretend that I I know, you know, like the the entire history of it. I can tell you that I've been installing it personally for 15 years and not just installing composites as, you know, like what we referred to earlier as band-aids and and different things. Installing engineered composite systems for 15 years and installing them on pipelines, inside of um, process facilities, pressure piping, non-pressure piping. Um, We've been, you know, this has been around and proven successful for a long time. And I think that's an important understanding to have because for some, oh, that you know, with adoption into legislation, will give people the idea that it's new. Um, It's just accepted. I don't think, you know, ABSA would have never introduced it into legislation or recommended it for introduction um, if it didn't have, if it wasn't backed by years of experience, by years of success. Um, other jurisdictions, like even, you know, um, the um, the Alberta Energy Regulator, uh, you know, leveraging composites for, for pipeline work inside of ZAD662, and then all across North America, all across Europe, Um, composites are used worldwide very effectively
0: yeah i mean you know this is new legislation and new regulations to allow process facilities to leverage engineer composite systems but as you say this has been a there's robust language in the pipeline codes sad 662 in canada there is robust language in the post-construction codes under ASME that has uh, that covers composite repairs for a long time, and you know similarly on an international level there there is robust language in, and and uh, procedures and processes in place under ISO regulations, and so globally this is you know different organizations have been using this for years and years and years following one or more of those of those guiding uh regulatory codes to use this successfully we're just uh we're just now getting there on the on the process uh side uh that's regulated inside of canada
1: yeah absolutely you know like certifying certifying authorities you know like lloyd's and 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 dnb and, and those types of organizations you know they've been issuing type approvals on composites for many years you know you know, verifying that installers and manufacturers have been installing, <laughs> designing and you know, this to those specifications. So it's definitely not new to the
0: industry. Chris owners right now, you know, we're in the uh in the post turnaround phase of the calendar year, which tends to be the planning phase for the next set of projects and the next set of turnarounds. Uh, And they're making decisions right now around what piping they should include in their projects and turnarounds for replacement, you know, and they're they're getting pressures around availability of craft based on the schedules of these events, about costs. How can owners think about this solution, in the way that they are planning their piping replacements in 2022?
1: I think, um, you know, I think there's a number of different ways to think about it.
0: So even from the
1: things that you mentioned, so resource, I I think resource allocation is, is one of the biggest things that's not considered. When, you know, when you consider installing composites in past conversations that I've had, somebody would weigh the cost of permanent repair versus the cost of the alteration with the composite. And, you know, every time the cost of the composite is going to be less than the cost of the permanent repair. But, however, you know, maybe they're looking, I was like, well, if I got to spend up to 50% or if I got to spend 30% of the permanent repair, it makes more sense to repair permanently. So I'll just schedule for a turnaround. And, and I get that thinking. But if you then have a resource crunch, if there's schedule conflicts with um, with your turnaround team, if there's lack of manpower or lack of inspection resources, there's so many of these items can be alleviated by extracting some of these either identified um, degrading pipelines and pulling them forward in, in a scope or You know, letting them go through a turnaround to then wrap after, just essentially taking them out of the turnaround repair scope and completely restoring the integrity through composite, not taking a risk at all. You're completely restoring that integrity. And now you can allow for continued operation of that asset. I almost think of it, Don, like like a return on investment conversation, right? So if you purchase something and you expected to get 10 years out of that asset, And you purchased it because you were going to get a return on investment at the 10-year mark or so much at 10 years. But now you're repairing it in year five, in year six, in year seven. And then in year seven, you're just completely scrapping it and rebuilding it. Well, then that wasn't a very good investment. However, if you decide to use composites in year six or seven to get you to that 10-year, now you've, you've made a small change. And you're gonna, you know, you'll get a much better return on investment on that particular asset. And I think that's how people should maybe, or a different way for people to think about it, than just what does it cost to composite and what does it cost to repair, and just do those two evaluations.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, pe- you know, clients pay a premium to get ten thousand meters of piping replaced in a turnaround in a six-week window and inevitably they start de-scoping based on criticalities and then they start having to think about you know can we get can we pull this piping out and do it in the next turnaround or can we put it on a project list for 2023 2024 a lot of that a lot of those decisions can become a lot easier if you don't have that time crunch of i've got to do all this in six weeks versus a big chunk of this work can now be done in the three months before the turnaround or the three months after the turnaround and they can focus on the most critical activities for the time and the resources and the schedule that they have. I think it it, it gives uh, planning and integrity another whole capability that doesn't force them to, to do some of these kinds of replacements in kind uh, in a short window when, you know, no matter what seems to happen, every single owner Um, in Canada, seems to want to do a turnaround in the same weeks in the spring or the same weeks in the fall. Um, You know, there's all sorts of strategies around, you know, them trying to figure out how to coordinate that better. But, you know, I I never seem to see it being successful. And what I hear about 2022 is, um, from a turnaround craft standpoint, we're thousands short for the spring.
1: You know, absolutely. And I, I don't even fully, you know, begin to understand, you know, what those cost implications are going to be for our owners. I'm sure they're, you know, they're worried about it and they're figuring it out right now. But, you know, one way to impact your turnaround schedule is to, you know, identify identify pipelines that, that can be extracted out from that, repaired via composite, um, put back into operation and, you know, scheduled for 2025, or you know, sometime down the road, that um, that you know, and you can really be strategic about what you repair, what you need to repair, and how you allocate your resources. I think, and that even goes from inspection all the way through to the craft that are going to do the replacement.
0: Yeah, there's there's an awful lot of different uh, strategic byproducts of of having this capability from your inspection and your monitoring teams, your asset teams your turnaround teams, your maintenance teams, all of a sudden, this work can be, uh, give you a lot more flexibility in how you're dealing with asset integrity and life um, and return on investment on all those investments, which are the, where are the best places to spend the money to get the best return, right?
1: That's it. That's it. And you know, if you're only, I mean, I don't know, like if you've got a, if you've got a line that, you know, you're continuously having to replace and, Um, Maybe this is not a scenario, but if you've got something that you're replacing every other turnaround or, or something like that, then, you know, like, maybe the answer is not to continue doing that it's like we can double the life, let's get you through two or let's, you know, double or triple that life that you've been getting out of your asset to then really take advantage of that, you know,
0: of that return. We talked a lot about Alberta. And, you know, we're referring to AB 539, and that's an Alberta process. But Saskatchewan and Sask were, were an embedded part of this industry working group. Where has Saskatchewan and Sask gotten to in terms of adopting these processes? And, and, and then sort of by, by virtue of that, how can Saskatchewan owner, facility owners take advantage of this, this process?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it's exactly the same. They 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 don't need to do anything different because the the leg, the adoption of the legislation is the same, and the adoption of AB five thirty nine is the same. So the exact same document applies in Saskatchewan. It covers the exact same um, responsibilities for owners, for installers, for designers. Um, it's it's literally the same process.
0: You're just submitting it to a different regulatory bo- party. Yep. Awesome. So everyone in Saskatchewan um, who is listening, all of this engineered composite system process applies to you right now at your facilities. Um, anything else happening in Canada with other jurisdictions or anyone kicking the tires? What, what, what can you share uh, all of our other listeners who, who, uh, who aren't fortunate enough to be in Alberta and Saskatchewan relative to engineered composites?
1: And, and, you know, I've been a little disconnected from the rest of the jurisdictions as we so like, we hyper-focused. We, you know, we, we, got the, we got the in and we jumped on it and they got hyper-focused on what was happening in Alberta and Saskatchewan. What I believe is going to happen next, um, this, the adoption for ECS, I believe is gonna go through throughout Canada. Um, and I think it will start with kind of like what I mentioned before, is owners not necessarily asking, but not, not, not doing and asking for forgiveness either, is making a decision that using an ECS is the right for this application. So let's take an owner in Ontario, for instance. I believe that if they, they decide and have intention to use an ECS, Following the process, very similar to what they do for EPEs or very similar to what Alberta has outlined for ECS, we'll get adoption and acceptance in Ontario as well if um, we take that route. But waiting for, I think, legislation to change or for someone to just decide when they I'm going to accept it, I don't think that's going to be the route. I think it can not even necessarily be forced just demonstrated that this is an effective and safe repair method. And we demonstrate that through applications and I believe they'll be accepted.
0: You know, you and I have gone in and sat with uh, regulatory jurisdiction teams and the the pushback that we got is, well, the owners don't want this. No one has ever said that they want this. And so um, if the owners in a particular jurisdiction Are waiting for legislation to change it's not going to happen i think the you know just based on the on the feedback we've gotten it's got to be owners who go to the regulators and say i want to do this and now you have a framework to follow it and at least then that i see it as happening as one or two things either they will take on some pilot projects from owners to say hey you know we're going to follow this process that alberta and saskatchewan has followed because many of the owners that might be in a different jurisdiction. You know, many of them have facilities in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and they're going to be adopting it here. So it's going to be a little uh, a little bit easier for the ones who happen to be multi-jurisdictional facility owners. Um, and, but, you know, based on what, what, what regulators have said to us, waiting for the regulator to make the change, I think it's actually the asset teams at those facilities coming up with a plan and approaching the regulator saying, we want to follow this method and do these repairs. And that might take the route of some individual pilot projects, or they may they may get together as an industry group and look at that legislation and that, those guidelines and either adopt them in kind or adopt them with modification. But I do think it starts with the the asset teams with the owners being proactive to say, we want to do this.
1: Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree, and and that was absolutely was very clear with us on that, and you know it was think back it was a little funny, and they said you know like we hear a lot of I want to do this and we should do this, it's like we don't see any action. Where's the action, right? And that was a lot of what they said in the beginning, and and I honestly think the action is deciding that an ECS is the repair that I want to do, and then doing doing the work. Like I said, don't don't ask can I do it. Do the work, do the risk assessment, show the equivalent level of safety, and then present that as as the repair. Even today, I believe that would be accepted in in any jurisdiction in Canada based on what's happened over the last couple of years.
0: Perfect. You know, and hopefully we could start to see owners in other areas moving in that direction, and then regulators working alongside them to make that happen so that this just becomes a nationwide process. Um, Chris, this whole process um, with engineered composite systems, you know, from a regulatory and a compliance and a competency standpoint, is really focusing in on safety, on good engineering and good quality assurance on, on all of those aspects that are, that, you know, I think, you know, you know the regulator's job is to focus on intent and safety. Um, but what else have you, you looked at doing or done to either streamline and optimize the way this is done, the way that this work is carried out so that it can improve cost effectiveness, that it can improve productivity, uh, and, you know, other aspects of bringing additional value.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, first off, you know, a lot of the, you know, the innovation in, we'll say, in the material, right? The innovation, the product, in the material. You know, a lot of that comes on the manufacturer side of things. However, we 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 play a part in that as well when we, you know, approach jobs and, you know, different techniques for installation, for instance. You know, can cause a manufacturer to. To revisit a process or to revisit how things are done so there's a continuous feedback loop between you know an an installer who's really invested and the manufacturer to improve the either the techniques for installation the you know the the layer count the curing process all of that stuff is a continuous improvement process one of the the major advances that we've made is when it comes to surface preparation and surface preparation, I, I really started to focus on surface preparation um, oh, I don't know, not not when I first started and I think this is a bit of a story, I guess, but when you take an engine when you take a composite training event, they will tell you that the pipe needs to be prepped. And they will show you, you know, in your design, of what the anchor profile or the roughness needs to be for that prep. They don't teach you how to prep it and they don't really emphasize. I don't believe the importance of that prep. It's all about the technique on how to install. And you're probably given some sandblasted piping components to to wrap. So, you know, ideal conditions, then you go out into the field and maybe you're hand prepping piping and you're using ideally you're using mechanical equipment like something like a bristle blaster or something like that to achieve your anchor profile. But that was a big, I think that was a big gap and why a lot of failures happened in the beginning with, with contractors not being familiar with composites. So we really leaned into the importance and the training and the inspection of surface preparation. That was a big thing for us. So then we started to, we started inside of the AB 539 and the new legislation you have to be very particular about how your procedure is qualified. So if you qualify a procedure with hand prepping tools then that's how you have to install it in the field and if you qualify a procedure with sandblasting you have to install it that way in the field. For any for most I would say composite installing companies that's a third-party activity. So you're, you're either leaning on your client and you're bugging them to bring in a third-party blaster that they already have a contract with or you're you're seeking one out you're qualifying them from you know a safety aspect you're qualifying them from a quality aspect a lot of that takes time and resources to make sure that you select the right third-party contractor so what we've done is we've taken all of our expertise and emphasis on surface prep and we've built our own grit blasting skid that we can take with us to any project, you know, that requires more than a hand prepping tool. So if we're doing fittings, if we're doing an elbow or a tee, we're still, a lot of that's gonna be hand prepped. But when we do now, when we do large volume piping repairs with composites, we have our own composite grit blasting skid that we take out with us every, and our team is trained on how to use it, following a competency system as well. And then we can execute the jobs much faster and also then deliver that, even the productivity and the savings back to the client, because we're not including that third party contractor and all the time and resources that goes in to qualify that person.
0: You're, you're eliminating two or three people out of the project and all the complexity of coordinating. Cause it's actually the same team who is doing the prep and the install in, in this, in this approach, right? It's,
1: that is, so if, I, if there was two major wins from our perspective, it, it's that, what you just described, but then think about it from an ownership standpoint, right? The third party grip blaster is hired to blast the pipe. And then, you know, when we wrap it, he's leaving. Now we can inspect that and ensure that he blasted it to the right criteria, but I think it takes a different form when the person who's blasting is also the person who's responsible for the repair. It just really increases that accountability that you're going to do it right. Not only are you going to do it right, you know how it needs to be done because you're also an expert installer as well.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a simple optimization of that process, but I I think it has a whole bunch of different benefits for the owner. Productivity, savings, quality, accountability, um, and, and ultimately... Right. the installers are inspecting and looking for a particular surface prep and a particular anchor profile. Now they can make sure that they get it without any rework.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Right. Yeah. Great conversation, Chris, lots of owners out there are going to be curious. They are probably all trying to figure out how they can start to leverage this. Um, how they can develop their process, how they can implement this system, how can you help them? You know, we can, based on you know, as a as
1: an installer, we can be that easy button when it comes to all the installer responsibilities and accountabilities inside of the new legislation inside of AB five thirty nine, and and that's just a given. Like we can ensure that you're we're providing competent people and we're providing the level of detail we're providing we're ensuring that you're compliant for those areas i think that's you know that's like a basic level of how one installer can help but because we were so involved in the industry group and developing the document and understanding the intent of it i think we can help you at any stage if you're struggling with creating the, the wording for your own quality management system or somewhere in between that and the execution at whatever stage it's in, we can help um, if it's just getting you started, if it's helping you pick the right pilot project internally for you to start, or if it's just holding, you know, holding, I don't want to say holding a hand because that seems um, a little negative, but if it's just walking with you through the registration process Or through your own quality management system and writing that section of the document i think we can help in a number
0: of ways the easy button from start to finish whatever help you need we can lend a helping hand right absolutely exciting times chris um i'm you know you know this and i that i've been passionate about coming up with a mechanism for Uh, the industry to both add controls and quality to composite repair, but also to get regulators on board. And we've gotten there. uh, Absolutely.
1: We've got there and it's, now it's about executing within the scope that was carved out. And in a very short time, we're going to be pushing for more, right? We're going to be pushing for those, through hole defects that are non-category D to be added in the legislation. We're going to be pushing for that design life, for that, you know, five year design life and not just being held to one to two. But this is the starting point and is a great place to start with uh, with more adoption and more use and more need to extend those asset life, we're going to get much more um, freedom to use this product in, you know, inside of Alberta and, and throughout Canada.
0: Awesome. Exciting times for the industry and uh, looking forward to uh, helping lots of clients do this. All right. Thanks, Don. Thanks for coming on the show, Chris. Yeah, no problem. Anytime.